Good morning, Redeemer Church. Can you hear me all right? All right. So as Glenn said, my name is Ben Mowell. Uh, my lovely wife, Sarah, and I are members uh, in Cedar Falls. Uh, I just joined the pastoral team in October, and uh, I was talking with Brent before the service, and he said, I don't, didn't know you preached. And I said, I didn't either. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, this is my third sermon, um, so bear with me as we go. But let's start uh, by approaching God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, I just thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to gather as your people, as your body in this place. Lord, it's such a privilege that we have um, to be together following the command that you've given us to not give that up. Um, so Lord, I just ask, I submit this time to you, I ask that you would use um, these words to be a blessing, to edify, and to build up your body. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I do know a handful of you here uh, from places like Men's Advance, some worship nights, and periodic visits, but most of you probably don't meet, know me uh, or feel like you know me, if at all. And I'm going to start with a quote from Bilbo Baggins. He said, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve which isn't completely true in my case because I like those of you I know quite a lot, which is why I agreed to be here today. <laughs> so if you're asking why is this guy preaching, that's a good question. Uh, I'm actually subbing for Dirk, his spot in the rotation, um, since he's gone and I'm actually scheduled to preach this passage next week in Cedar Falls. So if you've been blessed sitting under his teaching the past few weeks, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do, however, offer a money-back guarantee, so... <laughs> If you want a refund, see me afterward. Uh, when Dirk asked me to take this date at the beginning of January, I agreed without really looking at the passage, to Glenn's point. So now I can see why he skipped town. Just kidding, Dirk, if you're watching. I'm glad you asked. Actually, I was scheduled to preach here in November, and then I got COVID, so I was a little bit worried when I was asked this time what was going to be thrown my way. So just for a little bit of context and who I am, I want to start with what I'm not. So the first thing that I'm not is I'm not an academic Bible scholar. I'm not a Greek or Hebrew linguistics ep, uh, expert. I'm not a theologian. I'm not even a seminary grad. Um, the sermon's not going to have powerful rhetoric. It's, it's not going to be flashy. I just hope to get into the Word of God with you. Um, and so as I say that, what am I? I'm a lay pastor, or to use another New Testament term, a tent maker. So I've been called as an elder or shepherd uh, but I also work full-time as an engineer at John Deere. So let's get into it this morning. Um, the sermon, we're in the middle of a series called Out of the Shadows. And we've talked about this, so hopefully if you've been here, you know what it means. But if you haven't, I'll just recap very briefly. So the book of Hebrews is making the case from the author in a letter to uh, Jewish Christians who had come to faith uh, and to their friends and family who haven't yet, that all reality points to Christ, that he is the substance of the universe, that he's the radiance and image of God, that he's superior to the angels, to Moses and the law. So he's taking, the author of Hebrews is taking all the things that Jewish people would have revered and esteemed, and he's saying, yeah, those are good, but Jesus is better than all of that. That's the case that all of Hebrews is making. So this passage that we just heard read um, seems to come out of nowhere a little bit. 
in the context of what we've been talking about. Uh, but if you think about it in this way, that Jesus is better than everything, what the author's saying is, don't abandon your faith. If he's really better, don't go back to where you once were. So if we remember that this letter was written to backsliding Christians from a Jewish uh, heritage, it really makes a lot of sense. So a few points of clarification before we really dive in here. Um, as Glenn mentioned, this is a really challenging text. So there are many smarter, more educated, more experienced preachers who have struggled with this problematic passage. What I will share is what God has put on my heart this week. And if you feel like that does not adequately explain the text, I would encourage you to seek out additional perspectives that the Holy Spirit may use to bring revelation. So to quote Dr. Kevin Zuber, who's a professor at Moody Bible Institute, he said, with almost all other commentators and preachers, I guess I need to say, I'm giving this my best shot, and if I do not convince everyone of my view, I'm in very good company. Um, so another thing to point out is that this passage presents challenges to just about every one of the five points of Calvinism, but most obviously is the last, which is the perseverance of the saints. So I say this not to create the impression that we're about to dive into a really technical examination of the doctrine of the text, uh, even though some of you may be disappointed to hear that but rather to point out that there are other themes and threads in this passage that you can examine in your own study of these verses, right? I don't want you to come away from this thinking that, you know, this time that we have together this morning is a supplement for you spending time in the Word, hearing from God. So, as to the interpretation of the individuals that we're going to get into later in verses 4 through 6, there's essentially four major views. Um, so this is outlined by Dr. Homer Kent um, in his commentary on Hebrews. So there's Basically, four ways that you can interpret individuals who are being referenced in this passage. We're not going to talk a lot about this, but I wanted to lay it out there because I think it's a helpful framework as we read through. So the first uh, interpretation is that these are saved individuals who were subsequently lost. So they had genuine faith in Christ. At some point along the way, they lost that. Um, there's also an interpretation that these are professed believers, someone who said they believe who has never really been saved. The third would be that these are saved believers who have backslidden. And then the fourth example is really a hypothetical case, an impossible hypothetical case, to illustrate the folly of apostasy. So um, as we get into this a little bit later, I'm going to focus primarily on the two that I believe are most consistent with the rest of Scripture, which would be either professed believers who have never really been saved or a hypothetical case that's not actually possible. Um, so I just want to point out that while espousing a specific interpretation of this passage is not necessary for salvation, it will probably impact how confident you are in your own salvation or that of others around you. Okay, so now we've laid the groundwork. Let's get in here. So the author of Hebrews starts out um, and establishes two categories of people in, in these verses. So there's those who remain faithful and those who fall away. And in the process of creating these two categories, the author uses an analogy of how farmland responds to watering. So what I'd like to do with the first portion this morning is examine the analogy of that, how water responds to watering and farming, and then we're going to come back to what that means and the application at the end. Um, so starting in uh, verse 7, it says, excuse me, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. 
But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the, its end is to be burned. So what comes to mind is what else does Scripture say about land, plants bearing fruit? <clears throat> We've heard language like this in other points of Scripture. So where else do we see this analogy, and how can it help us to understand and interpret this passage in Hebrews 6? So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 and 18 to 23. And so if you're wondering where this is all going, we're going to start with a detour out of Hebrews, and we're going to bring it back, I promise. So I think you'll see why it's helpful. So if you're there already, you'll recognize that we're going to be looking at the parable of the sower. So I'm just going to read the verses here to start. Beginning in verse 1, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced again, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear." And then skipping to verse 18 is the interpretation that he provides. It says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And as for what is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So I want to dive in here and break down a little bit of what we see in this passage. So the first thing we see in the interpretation in verse 19 is that the seed is hearing the word of God, the word of the kingdom, it says in this passage. We can also see in verse 19 that the soil is the human heart. And what's implied is that its condition, the condition of the soil, is the relative receptiveness of a human heart to, receiving, to hearing and receiving the gospel. So then as we get into the following verses, 19 through 23, there are four types of soil listed. So there's the path, there's rocky soil, there's thorns, and good soil. But even though there's four listed, we really only see two outcomes. Two outcomes. And those two outcomes parallel the two types of land that we see in Hebrews 6. So kind of file that away for later. So we could categorize the first three types of soil by their outcome, which is to say that they are unfruitful soil. Whether it was the path, the rocky soil, or the weeds, none of those bore fruit. A plant either does not begin to grow at all, such as the path, or it begins to grow but dies before maturity and fruit bearing in the rocky and thorny cases. 
Only the good soil produces plants which eventually bear fruit. So what's the difference between those two outcomes? Why do we see the different soil types reacting that way? Well, the, the first is that only the soil which is not hard, which is clear of predators, rocks, and weeds, or you could say generically it's cultivated, will bear fruit. Soil that is impenetrable or already occupied will not produce plants that continue to grow to maturity and fruit bearing. So what are some of these things that could prevent the plant from growing? We see them here in the text. The first one is the devil himself, the enemy who causes distraction or confusion when people are hearing the word of God. He also causes anger or fear in response. And then we see some more external um, circumstantial examples such as tribulation, persecution, cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches. So these are all things that can crowd out and choke the gospel in our lives. So as we look at this passage, why is this ch passage challenging to interpret? Um, I think part of it is because in three types of soil, a plant emerges and begins to grow. And these plants may all look identical for a short time. So when we as plants look around and see other plants, we assume they came from the same type of soil, which is not necessarily true, right? We can see that in the passage. We could actually infer that the majority of the plants, two-thirds in this case, were not planted in soil capable of bearing fruit. And this is really hard. It's not easy to think about that, that there are people who hear and maybe even demonstrate some response to the gospel but don't truly believe. It also challenges our American Christian language of what saved and unsaved are, because we treat this as a point in time or an event like a profession of faith, like when the plant sprouts. However, I think it's clear that the parable of the sower, the point of it is that the emergence, that's a technical term, it just means sprouting, of a single plant is not the measure of success. But rather, when that plant continues to grow and bears fruit and reproduces. You catch that? It's not just as a plant sprout, it's not just as a plant grow, it's does that plant continue to grow and bear fruit and reproduce. Okay, so we're going to continue examining this analogy and we're going to turn over to John chapter 15. Trust me, this all ties together. So starting in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So what do we see here? <clears throat> well, in verse 1, Jesus tells us explicitly that he is the vine and that the Father is the vine dresser. 
And then the rest of these verses, he elaborates and outlines that there are two types of branches. So in verses 2 through 5, we see that there are branches which do bear fruit. They abide, they are pruned, and they eventually bear fruit. And then on the other hand, we see that there are branches which do not bear fruit. In verse 6, they wither, they're thrown away, eventually gathered and burned. It's interesting to note that both kinds of branches were attached to the vine at one point, which is part of what makes this so challenging. What's the difference in the outcomes of those two vines? So we looked at the previous passage, there's two different outcomes of soil. What's the difference in the outcomes for the vines or the branches here? So one branch continues to grow and bear fruit indefinitely. The other branch eventually stops growing, dries up, dies, and is discarded. So now we're really getting somewhere. From the parable of the sower, we saw that there are two outcomes of land, bearing fruit or not bearing fruit. In John 15, we can start to see where the author of Hebrews borrowed some of his language. And we also see the secret of how to bear fruit and the consequence of not bearing fruit, right? In, chapter, in verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. So that's the secret to bearing fruit. Okay, so one more passage before we go back to Hebrews. And this is going to be Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. I'll turn there with you. <clears throat> so it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And continuing on to verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whew, that's kind of heavy. Again, this is not an easy teaching. But what we see in these, these verses here is that there are two categories of tree and they can only produce one type of fruit. So we see the healthy tree in verses 16 to 18 that bears good fruit. And we see a diseased tree in verse 19, which you could also equate with thorns or thistles, that bears bad fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. So why did I read the second, passage, the second component of that passage? Verses 22 and 23. Well, this makes it clear that trees do not always recognize what kind they are. Right? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yikes. So there are clearly people in trees who believe that they're following and aren't. 
We see this also in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. It's also worth highlighting in this passage that the fruit produced is the tangible evidence of what kind of tree it is. So we see the healthy versus diseased, and that's how you can distinguish between the trees. And I think it's also worth examining that I think this passage is not just referring to a believer versus an unbeliever, but living in the flesh versus living in the spirit. And I want to highlight that because um, it says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit and the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Well, I think every Christian I know has borne bad fruit at some point in time in their life, right? That's not the, the way that they're characterized, but you do see it. But the Spirit does not bear bad fruit. Do you see that distinction here? This isn't just about are you a believer or not. It's are you walking in the flesh or are you walking in the Spirit because the Spirit does not bear bad fruit. And on the other side, the flesh always bears bad fruit, right? So I want to point that out because I think that's an important distinction that we don't normally talk about. Okay, so we've gone through three passages examining this extended analogy of farming and trees and fruit and a whole lot of things you probably don't spend much of your time in a normal day thinking about. So what can we discern from these three passages collectively? Well, I want to draw some things out here. So the first is that every heart has a soil type or a condition that fundamentally determines the outcome of a gospel seed planted in it. So this can be difficult to discern, but we can look for indicators in a person's response to the gospel, their response to tribulation, to persecution, to cares of the world, to riches. So the easiest one is if they don't respond to the gospel, right? Well, that's a pretty rocky or hard heart. The next point is that soil can sustain growth for beneficial plants, the kind of faith plants that we want, but it can also sustain growth for weeds and thorns. A human heart will produce something. The question is what? And we see that only good soil produces plants that bear fruit. So then I want to ask this question. If the seed is the good news of the gospel and the plant is faith, what is salvation? What is salvation? I think it's clear, as I mentioned earlier from the parable of the sower, that seeing a faith plant is not evidence of salvation by itself. Two of the four soil types render a plant that dies. So continued growth and fruit bearing are necessary. I think that's pretty clear from that parable. The other thing, as I mentioned, is that in the early stages, all plants look very similar and are difficult to distinguish one, from one another. But this doesn't mean that a plant can change midlife. If a plant came up as a weed, it's going to be a weed. If it came up as a thorn, it will remain a thorn. And likewise, branches that do not produce fruit will be cut off. It's also clear that the growth of a fruit-bearing plant is provided by God alone. Not all land is seeded, not all seeds germinate or sprout, not all land is watered the same amount, not all watering results in the same response. Even in good soil, a receptive heart with watership, or with water, 
discipleship in the word, the entire process depends on God's provision. We see this clearly in 1 Corinthians 3.7, where Paul says, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who grants the growth. What else can we see here? We see that a true plant of faith never stops growing or bearing fruit. It does not die, but abides in Christ and experiences abundant life into eternity. So this is spelled out a little bit more clearly in 2 Peter verse 10. He says, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, or fall away would be the, the phrase used in Hebrews. In, um, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper adds to this, and he says, It's true that Paul believed in the eternal security of the elect, but the only people who are eternally secure are those who make their calling and election sure by fighting the good fight of faith and laying hold on eternal life. Jesus said, The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's Mark 13, 13. So we can discern that falling away is a sign that true faith was not present. We see this with the bad soil, the diseased plant. It produces bad fruit or weeds or thorns. And this can look really good, right? That's the hard part. This can look so much like the life we want to live. But it's full of good deeds done in the flesh, attempting to earn righteousness. And where this comes out in the heart is that our attitude towards God is one of fear, one of legalism. We feel a burden and a weight and fatigue and resentment toward God. Sam Storms, the pastor at Bridgeway Church, puts it this way. He says, apostasy or falling away doesn't mean that you were once in and have now fallen out of a saving relationship to Christ. It means you were never in or never became a partaker in, with Christ in the first place. So I think one of the realities here is that we should be saddened but not surprised when a plant with a lot of foliage turns out to be a weed or displays bad fruit. The reason the category exists in these parables and analogies is because those categories exist in the human heart. The only sure indicator of true faith, as we see in these passages, is bearing fruit until the end. And we saw in John 15, the secret to that is to abide in Christ. And how does this work out? Because true faith does not settle for the presence of rocks and weeds and bad fruit. Because the presence of the Holy Spirit convicts and empowers change continuously on an ongoing basis that we can't sustain in the flesh. And what that looks like in our attitude toward God is one of joy and delight and praise and worship. Drawing from another um, leader, R.C. Sproul, the theologian, says, True Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total and final falls from grace. Okay, so I told you we were going to take a detour, and now we're going to bring that detour back into Hebrews. So now that we have a much clearer understanding of the analogy that the author used, let's revisit the warning and its application to us. So starting in verse 4, I'm just going to flip back there.
It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So that's what this analogy is all about. That's what it's all pointing to, right? So let's talk first about what does this warning not mean? What does it not mean? It does not mean that screwing up or even egregious sins will permanently separate a true believer from God or his love. That's the whole nature of redemption, right? And we see examples of this in Scripture, um, not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament. We see David committed murder and rape, but was described as a man after God's own heart. We see Jonah, the prophet, who fled from his calling, who ran from God, and when he came back to complete his mission, he had a terrible attitude about it. But God still provided him with shade. And we see Peter, who denied ever even knowing Jesus, and then became one of the most bold preachers of the gospel after Jesus' death. So if you want a scripture that, that backs up this claim, look at Romans 8, 31 to 39. I'm just going to read it quickly. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? There's a lot of parallels there to some of the things listed in Hebrews. And then in verse 37, it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this means that God does not adopt us into his family just to turn around and unadopt us. Right? That's not how it works. So that's what the warning does not mean. Now we can turn around and, and ask the question, what does this warning actually mean? Well, there's a few things we can draw out here. The first is that many who benefit from the grace and mercy of God have not been born again. We see examples of this throughout Scripture. So there are many people who have been healed, who experienced freedom from demonic oppression, all kinds of miracles. They've seen God work. They've experienced it themselves. And they were not true believers. So you can see this with Israel, right? The whole nation. They were rescued from Egypt miraculously. Miracle after miracle. They were fed manna in the desert. They were rescued from plagues. They were given water and food when there was nothing. So they all benefited from that. But they weren't born again. And they often turned from God, right? That's the whole story of the Old Testament. We also see this with Judas, who was walking with Jesus for three years, right? And with the other disciples and was one of them by all appearances, but had actually been devoted to destruction, was not part of their number. 
So again, the sad reality is that there are people in churches all over the world today who have not experienced regeneration in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. And there are probably some even listening right now in this room or online. So what are the attributes of this person? So we see this listed in chapter 6. It says they once have been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God, tasted the powers of the age to come. And again, I think there's two possible interpretations here. I'm not going to try to sway you one way or the other, but they're essentially this. So the first is that either those who may fall away, described in these verses, were never truly adopted and made righteous. They fooled themselves in some way or never gave up their claims on their own life. Or the warning is an impossible hypothetical scenario to illustrate to the converted Jews the foolishness of trying to return to their roots because they had been purchased by a God who will not let them go. Nothing can separate us from or them or us from his love, or pluck them or us from his hand. Jesus will not be crucified again, nor will he be put to shame, but rather worshipped and glorified for eternity by those whose salvation he secures. So as we kind of tie this all together, the big question is, so what? What does this mean? Here I want to look at verse 9 because it leaves us with hope. Right? It's kind of heavy and dark. But verse 9 leaves us with hope. And it says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So we can absolutely have certainty and assurance of faith in and through Christ. He said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We see this same theme repeated multiple times. We'll see it farther on in Hebrews over and over, but I just want to call out the end of this chapter, verses 17 through 20. It says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He became a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So this is, the end of this chapter ties the warning in with all the rest of Hebrews that we've been seeing over the past months. And what it's saying is our hope is secure because Jesus is secure. If he was a normal priest who had made a normal sacrifice, we should be insecure. We'd have to come back next year, right? That's the way it worked. But our perfect priest offered a perfect sacrifice given on our behalf, and he now sits forever at the right hand of the Father, making our hope secure. So how do we respond to this? Well, in our flesh and our sin, we would all fall away. Only those whom God has chosen and empowered by his Holy Spirit 
can actually hold fast and abide because he achieves it for them. So what does this mean practically? As we mentioned earlier, both Peter and Paul say to make your election sure. God's work of, self, of sanctification is the assert... Wow, I really tripped up on that one. Let's try again. God's work of sanctification is the assurance of salvation. Right? You don't get one without the other. And I think this is something that really has challenged a lot of what I heard growing up, which is a sense that salvation is like a get-out-of-jail-free card. That you can somehow believe in God and be saved from hell and then just go live your life and maybe you'll do good things and maybe you won't. But that salvation is just kind of like, it works in our favor, but there's nothing that comes after. So I want to be clear here. We either pursue the things of God and inherit eternal life or we pursue the things of death and inherit destruction. So what can we do? We can prepare the soil. We can remove rocks and weeds and thorns from our hearts. New weeds constantly pop up and must be eradicated. If you garden or farm in any fashion, you'll know that's the case. They grow better than anything else. We can ask for sin to be revealed and uprooted, not just leaving them to become strongholds. We can ask God to prune and sanctify us, just as Jesus himself prayed for us in the garden. The other application is that there is good soil that has not yet been sown or watered. And that means we need to preach the good news. And I want to put a caution out here. We need enthusiasm, but we also need reality. Three out of the four soil types do not yield salvation. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So God assures us that there will be fruit and there will be a harvest, but he also says that there will be frustration and disappointment too. Only he grants the increase, and we may labor for a really long time before we see it. Some good examples of this would be the missionaries William Carey and Adoniram Judson, uh, to India and Burma, respectively. And both of them labored for seven years in those countries before they saw a convert. Seven years. Think about going to work for seven years before you saw a paycheck. That's being faithful to the call. So I'd like to uh, close by sharing a very condensed version of my personal testimony. Um, there may be some parts that are uncomfortable to hear, but I firmly believe that when we see when others see the depths from which God has rescued us and delivered us, he receives the glory. And my hope is that by hearing of God's faithfulness in my life, it might encourage those of you who are struggling and weary and know those battles. So I was born into a Christian home, um, and I mean Christian home, like devout believers for several generations before me. So we could say that I had good soil, that there were many seeds sown and watered, I actually gave my life to Christ at the age of four. I just woke up from a nap. I was like, I need Jesus. And so I got down by my bed and prayed and went upstairs and told my family. And from that, a plant of faith began to emerge. And that plant continued to grow. But over time, 
some weeds and thorns also began to emerge. And I would categorize those as legalism, self-righteousness, and lust. Specifically, that looked like in my very early teenage years becoming addicted to pornography. And that became a theme that drove a wedge in my relationship with God for years. But because God is gracious and loving, he started laying a foundation to humble me and to restore me. So my oldest sister, when I was in high school, she had been a missionary in China, come back, and she had really felt like God was calling her to invest in our family. And so she spent time with me, discipling me, praying together. And then when I graduated high school, I was accepted at an out-of-state college. Um, so I was really excited about it. I moved to Indiana. But in that process, I lost all my community, all my safety net, all my fellowship. And I did find a church I was somewhat engaged in until during my sophomore year, uh, junior year, I started dating a nominally Catholic girl, <clears throat> despite my better judgment, and we started sleeping together. And there was so much shame in that for me because I felt like I was throwing everything that I'd learned in the face of my parents and all those who'd invested in me. And so that began what I call my Jonah period. So I was just not participating in church. I was not being accountable to anyone. I was running from God. Eventually, that relationship, she broke up with me. I tried to rebuild. didn't work out. I fell into depression, suicidal thoughts. And then right before Christmas in 2016, I was back home in Michigan with my family, and my sister, Jenny, the one who had spent so much time with me the years before, just really, she invited me out to breakfast and, and invited me to share my heart with her and just really what was going on in my life. And as a result of that conversation, she encouraged me. She said, Ben, you have to give this to God. Like, there's no healing that's going to come in your life unless you turn back to God. And so I thank him for her faithfulness in that. And as a result, she helped me find a church, Redeemer. She, wasn't, she doesn't live in Iowa, never been here. Uh, well, she has since then, but she was looking for a church for her and her husband at the time and recommended this based on what she read. So I just want to read very briefly as I close, and I'll invite the response team up. Um, this is what I wrote about that experience, about re-encountering God's love. And it says, over the ensuing months, my heart changed at a more rapid pace than I ever believed possible. And it was not because I changed my habits or found some gumption or pulled myself up by the bootstraps. All I did was exist, and I was transformed. It was a profound and extended encounter with the living God who was fulfilling the promises to be faithful to complete the work he started in me. And like Moses, my face almost started to shine. It was being a lost sheep, terrified and alone seeing the good shepherd coming back to bring me to the fold. It was coming home destitute and penniless as the prodigal son and seeing my father running to embrace me, preparing a feast in my honor. Words cannot adequately express the extent to which my spirit came alive in joyful worship those first few months. Since then, I've grown to love group and love the church as Christ's bride in a way I never did before. And the biggest change has been understanding God's sovereignty at work in my life and finally feeling the weight of my entire upbringing of legalistic, works-based redemption fall away. I had always known salvation as God's work, 
but I had thought sanctification was mine. When I was finally confronted by my own depravity and God's totally irresistible grace, I felt like I believed for the first time all over again. I started tithing because I actually wanted to do it. I finally experienced regular time reading scripture and throwing myself down before the throne of God in prayer. I wanted to serve. I wanted to be in fellowship. I wanted to be generous. I wanted to care for the needs of others. I wanted to be anywhere doing anything where God's people were present because I wanted to be transformed all the more. The most wonderful part is that I cannot claim one iota of credit. In not one single instance did I ever decide to change or will myself to do better. It was fully and only the work of the Holy Spirit changing the desires of my heart. So, I hope that encourages you, both in your struggle and in the faithfulness of God and making our hope secure. That we can abide in Christ and Him in us and that our salvation is sure. So we're going to respond And I would just ask that you take some time to reflect and meditate. One of the things we saw this morning is that there will be people who believe they were following Jesus who hadn't actually surrendered themselves to him. So I just ask you to think about that and challenge yourself if you've really truly given your heart to the Lord. We're also going to take communion. We're going to have an opportunity for giving. There's going to be more worship and singing and prayer. So I just invite you to ask God to continue to work in your heart as we close the service and to not just sit in it this morning, but to continue to reflect on that this week in your own time with the Lord. So let me end with prayer. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for this body. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for our hope that we have and the security that we have because of you not because of our works, but because of yours. Lord, would you encourage us in that? Would you remind us of that? Lord, would you be glorified in all that we say and do as we go from this place? In Jesus' name, amen.